Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here, vetgurus.com. Go there, look around and head back to what you are doing. Mark is with me as usual and this is a special, special, special. This is a little bonus episode for our 150th episode. So we're calling it 151, but it is being released around the same time as our 150th. So enjoy just when you thought you'd had enough of us. We're back. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. I'm great. Yeah, I love the way we do our prep just before we start recording. And I don't know, both of us have just a little bit of a flat tone. It's been a long day. But then I'm instantly excited by the music and your intro. I thought you were going to say we do our prep and then I say the total opposite of what (laughs) I was going to say. And I think that usually happens, doesn't it? That's the point. Yes. Well, that's, that's right. That's the point of it. Now, I don't know whether I've got much news because this is a little bonus one. We're sort of recording in advance, but um, things are plugging away here and it's, um, well, it's still basically lockdown fever here, so to speak, in Victoria, Australia, with our stage four restrictions and hopefully it's um, going to plan uh, because we're recording it a week or two out. Um, And I hope you enjoy this episode. We've got a very special topic here, haven't we, Mark? Have you got anything to review or chat about, Mark? I was just going to, well, like you said, it's overwhelming the whole um, concept of corona at the moment and um, and we're starting to see a little uptick. We've had it, um, we had uh, the football in Newcastle recently, the, the uh, round ball code plays at, uh, at uh, Hunter Stadium and... Um, and there was a little burst of cases, and um, and one of the kids had to have uh, Wilson had to have a test, um, and uh, fortunately came back negative. Um, but the whole process of uh, um, waiting in queues and finding testing sites—it's a bit of an insight into the stress associated with it, Brendan. Yes. Let me turn my microphone on. Um, so, how long did he have to wait to get tested? Um, well, altogether, the, the it was probably about. Oh, I think he said it was about ninety minutes. So, there's three. Uh, there's three non. You, you can get tested at a doctor's appointment here in Newcastle, um, and there are three non. You know, sort of drive-through uh, locations, but. Um, but uh, you go to those ones and, and there is a bit of a queue. People are queuing up at those. Um, and, yeah, I think Wilson had to wait about um, a bit over an hour. Um, but the results came back pretty quickly. I think um, they, they warned them they might be 72 hours, but they, they got them back in just over a day. And, um, and geez, uh, the, the, the relief... Uh, that um, like everyone around um, met the results with uh, just points to that sort of background anxiety that, uh, oh, geez, I hope there's no complication here. I hope there's no problem. Um, and um, and then when the results came through, it was a bit of a, everyone was a bit elated, Brendan. 
Yes, well, I've had several of my staff been going through the same process, and I think the weight can, depending on which testing station you go to and the time when it occurred, it can be up to three hours, Mark, um, to have the have the swab done. And um, the weight, I think, at one stage for the results was almost up to five to seven days, but it's come right down again um, when they ramped everything up again. And I think it's, yeah, around about the same one to two days now. So, yes. But life goes on, Mark, and we trudge along and we try and keep um, positive about things. And um, part of that is doing this weekly podcast, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and I'll tell you what, that's a very good segue into my first news story um, from Positive.News, um, which I've been scouring lately um, to try and get some positive news. And there's two two bits of this article, Mark, um, that interested me, and one of them um, I'm not quite sure whether it's a real positive news item or not. but So I'll read the f- other one first, and that's world's rarest gorilla pictures with pictured with babies and a group of rare gorilla, gorillas have been caught on camera with their young for the first time in Nigeria. They thought to be just 300 cross-river gorillas left in the wild, making them the world's rarest great ape, and they were thought to be extinct in Nigeria. Um, so they've got a little picture of... Have a couple of youngsters there on the back of mum, and um, it's it's good news, Mark. It's definitely good news that one. Um, so that's the first part of the positive news re- news report. The other one was oh, it was a bit weird. I'll, I'll tell you what it is, Mark, and you can comment on it. Bison to be reintroduced into England. <laughs> so they uh, so. Yes, it's not fake news. Um, They haven't roamed the country for thousands of years, but bison are poised to return to English woodland as part of a £1 million rewilding project in Kent. A herd of European bison will be their new home by spring 2022, say conservationists. The bison will be introduced to a 500 hectare, which is 1,200-acre area in Baleen Woods, along with other grazing animals such as conic ponies. And the project has been led by the Kent Wildlife Trust and funded by the People's Postcode Lottery Dream Fund, Mark. And the comment from the spokesperson, Paul Hadaway, was, this award means we can now take an important step towards reversing the terrifying rate of species lost in the UK using missing keystone species like bison to restore natural processes to habitats is the key to bioabundance in our landscape. What do you think of that, Mark? Well, I think it's a very <laughs> noble noble position to take. And um, I don't know, 500 hectares, there would be, People who have backyards bigger than that in Australia and um, and calling it rewilding as opposed to having a herd of pet bison seems to me to be splitting hairs. Um, they're, they're not That's really... probably a whole county in England, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I... And, look, I like the idea that um, that keystone species that do change the the local environment and lead to um, 
an increase in bioabundance that they're cultivated. Um, so, yeah, I think I can see it being a good news story, but I don't know. Just Anyway, we shouldn't be so negative. It's in the positive, the, in the uh, paper of positive Positive story. news, positive.news, um, but a potentially negative story. Um, yeah, I th- I, the, the thought's there, but I think the the execution of it is probably not um, – not good in my opinion. <laughs> so that's my two semi, one positive and one potentially positive story. And if any of our subscribers have a, a thought on that story or any others, vetgurus at gmail.com, send us an email. So what's your new story? Um, a positive one, Mark? I think it is a positive one. Well, it's um, it's interesting nonetheless. It's a, a story about um, dolphins um, and in particular it looks at uh, the bottlenose dolphins of Shark Bay in Australia, which are very, very closely watched because of their um, their location in Shark Bay where people can observe them. They are one of the populations of dolphins where, um, where scientists have had an opportunity to become intimately familiar with them and, and understand, you know, the individuals, get to know the individuals and understand their relationships. And one of the things they've... Uh, they've discovered recently, one of the things they've noticed um, is a particular form of fishing behaviour where the dolphins chase a fish into one of the um, the remains, a giant snail shell that's been abandoned by the the, um, snail that's passed away, Um, you know, those sort of giant uh, trumpet-type shells. And um, and once the fish is taken refuge in them, the dolphin grabs them and takes them up to the surface and shakes them um, and all the water, you know, they hold them above the surface of the water and shake them, draining all the water and then obviously the fish falls out with the water and um, and the dolphins are able to grab the fish as it uh, tries to make a dash to the bottom once again. So it's a fairly unique form of fishing um, and technically because the dolphins hunt the fish into the, the shells, um, it's thought of as a form of tool use. It's for, for the, the, shark, the, uh, the dolphins of Shark Bay using these um, shells as, as uh, traps more or less. Um, and then the most interesting part is the way that this behaviour is spread amongst, so not all the dolphins do it, um, and uh, and it's done frequently, um, but um, it would appear that it's a behaviour much like um, there was a, a chimpanzee who would um, uh, use a stick to collect ants that, um, uh, you know, that... Um, uh, the ants would jump on and um, they'd be those uh, big, uh, um, uh, they'd have big swollen abdomens full of sweet stuff and um, just the, the the chimp wouldn't destroy the nest, would just poke a stick in and the ants would jump on and they'd be able to eat them. Um, that sort of tool behaviour, this, is, is, this behaviour has been talked of as an analogy to that and it's passed on in a similar way and one of the most unusual things about the way it's passed on is um, that it's passed on to dolphins within the friend group not sort of like genetically not taught mother to uh, to child but um, within gangs um, so the shelling dolphins were always in the same generation um, 
And uh, and it's interesting to contemplate this peer-to-peer transmission of behaviour, um, whether the dolphins had some particular characteristic that um, that encouraged them to do this more than other dolphins, like, like maybe they hung out in an area where there were more of these shells and they observed the fish jumping into them. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating that um, like chimpanzees, dolphins live in loosely formed communities, a little bit uh, like primitive humans, um, meaning that they are exposed to different animals and behaviours. Um, and, um, and yeah, so sometimes these friend groups would have behaviours that uh, they pass on to others. So um, that's an interesting um an interesting observation and of course the scientists say it's invaluable data to have these long-term field studies you can't get this data any other way yes and i think you've been hanging out with some poor characters um in the past mark considering the habits that you've learned over the years Um, that's all i can say about that topic yes a very good and a typical beautifully illustrated and and formatted article from national geographic <laughs> and we'll have the link link to that uh, i'm just I, I never fail to be impressed with the use of white space mark <laughs> in particular with their articles um, so that's where that one's from but yes dolphins and their shelling mark um, I, the only time i've done shell i've been taught shelling by a group of friends is in the cinema when I'm um, unpacking some roasted peanuts, Mark. <laughs> That's my method of shelling. Oh, actually, have you been to – this is um, this is related topic. Have you been to Singapore and to to Raffles in Singapore? I have not. The, very fa- the famous bar in Raffles where they invented supposedly the, the Singapore sling. Not you yet, haven't. I can't. I haven't racked that so, experience up. A good friend of ours, Fred Chua, um, who's Singaporean, um, took us there, and I think you've met F- Fred. Um, and it was a little bit disturbing because the, the tradition there is, and I think it goes back to the to the colonisation there. Even though it's, um, Singapore's an independent country now of the the British colonisation there, that you'd go to the bar there and you'd s- sit on the stools in the bar, which <coughs> All, our, all my family did with the girls and I sat there with Fred and they give you, well, the Singapore sling if you order that, but um, a, a whole a bag of or a, or a little um, container of roast roasted peanuts, Mark. And the tradition is that you break the peanuts out of the shell and you throw the shells on the floor um, because that's what you do. And we found that quite trick difficult to do. And the peanuts—it's nice to eat the peanuts, but just throwing all the all the shells um, on the floor. Um, well, it's interesting that you say that because when Kate and I got married, we had our reception at a, a far less salubrious hotel than um, than Raffles in uh, the Raffles in Singapore. We were at SJ's in Newcastle, um, but they had exactly the same thing. But the this chase um, is the raffles of Newcastle exactly, and uh, and they um and we the all our guests had bowls of uh, peanuts that they could uh, crack and toss onto the floor, and they had no trouble doing it, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the origin of that? We'll have to, we'll have to. Yeah, I don't know. I think okay, might have. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. Um, okay, so we're way off track now, here, aren't we? We're not. Uh, we better get back to the vet podcast. So let's jump into our little 
extra topic here. We have for episode 151 as part of our 150th celebration, Mark, and that's a topic you suggested, hernias in birds. Um, so my first question to you, Mark, why did you select this one? Is it a common problem you see in, in clinical practice, hernias in birds? Well, it is a common problem, and um, and of course, the reason I suggested it at the moment is because um, we've had a, a few recent cases, and I expect we'll see. Uh, this is the time of year that we will see these cases. They are um, a problem that is very, very often associated with um, reproductive activity. So, as we get through the middle of winter and into spring, um, they do tend to be more likely to be seen. So we have seen a few um, and, um, and it made me think, well, I'll talk to Brendan about this. So it's a bit of a broad term there, isn't it, hernia, Mark? So what sort of hernias are we seeing in, in our avian pets? Well, it is a broad term and, um, and it, of course, our avian patients um, don't get diaphragmatic hernias because they don't have a diaphragm and um, umbilical hernias are fairly uncommon as well um, though sometimes the umbilicus doesn't close off properly as the yolk sac is absorbed amongst baby birds but we generally don't see that being a huge problem. No the main problem is uh, um, and of course the gonads don't come out through um, the inguinal canal, they, whether you're a male or female bird, they remain internal. So the birds are pretty much just one big body cavity, the coelom, um, and uh, characteristically um, we see uh, um, uh, caudal abdominal peri-cloacal uh, um, hernias, um, and, um, and they are, as I said, associated with... Uh, reproductive activity most frequently but not only that brendan not only that did i don't think i answered your question yes you did you <laughs> said they get hernias um but not only that you were going to say <laughs> not only that um i think it's really important to get a grasp of the pathogenesis that they're generally not like our cats who get diaphragmatic hernias because of trauma most of the time these hernias are not associated with a traumatic event um well yeah they're most of the time they're not um occasionally they are but even when they are they generally have a whole suite of predisposing causes of predisposing conditions that lead to them occurring um, and the typical one is the female bird that's stuck in that uh, folliculogenesis sort of phase that high estrogen phase of reproductive activity and the high levels of estrogen serve to cause the abdominal muscles to thin they cause the um, the gentle atrophy of the, the abdominal musculature. And, of course, if the whole process does proceed to place an egg in the oviduct, um, the birds uh, will strain to pass the egg. Um, and if a couple of other factors don't work out too well, the egg is maybe a little bit larger than usual and uh, the birds don't have excellent contractile ability as they strain their abdomen to pass the egg they will tear that thinned abdominal muscle and out pops a whole bunch of viscera into the subcutaneous space so related to that yeah what are the most common species then 
It's a good that you say this processing. Good question. Um, and the most common species that we see it in are the cockatoos. So it would seem to me um, that uh, the right um, the right uh, series of factors. That is, the birds are already. Um, probably moderately obese, the galahs and sulphur-crested cockatoos that have been on sunflower seed diets for a long time. And um, and then they uh, are poorly exercised. They might be in a relatively small cage. Um, they may even exacerbate their muscle atrophy because they don't exercise properly and uh, um, and as a consequence, the... the, um, the insertions a week the movements a week they produce an egg they often have um, large fat reserves as well these birds and that might be uh, make them have a slightly enlarged liver um, and certainly the subcutaneous deposits of fat would be um, uh, more than usual and and in extreme cases we will see um, the mesentery and uh, um, uh, suspensory ligaments of the internal uh, organs fill with fat as well and um, then you've got the perfect storm that bird um, becomes reproductively active um, it strains the cockatoos have slight that slightly more squat body shape not maybe as quite as lean as other birds and uh, and the altered angles mean it's easy for their very thinned muscle wall to tear um, and out pops the stuff inside and is this a really cute sort of process um so presenting wise clinically what does the client ring up and said there's a big swelling in my bird or is it a, only picked up in consultation or, or a bit of both well it's a bit of a spectrum there are certainly birds who uh, um who literally will prolapse an egg and some of the oviduct into a subcutaneous pouch with straining and so they may be presented for egg binding because the clients see you know, literally a lump that looks just like an egg. Um, it is, they are the worst sorts of cases um, because you you are dealing with two problems at once, the difficulty in getting the egg out, uh, but then the weakness in the, the abdominal wall means that you can't just like sew it back together. The stuff is like the muscle wall is like tissue paper. And as a consequence, if you do try and sew it back together, you'll often just... A developer rent right alongside your um, your suture line, so um, they they are they can be very frustrating cases. On the other end of the spectrum, um, there definitely are birds who um, who may not necessarily develop a um, you know get to the stage where they develop an egg. Um, they might just have an enlarged liver, increased fat, um, and be stuck in that um, estrogenic phase. Um, and they end up um, just slowly developing saggier and saggier abdominal muscles until um, until uh, the stuff just tears and stuff falls into the subcutaneous space. The feathers, though, um, in a lot of those birds will hide a lot of the worst part of the problems. And so it is often the case that we find evidence at annual examination or that it's presented by the client at a stage when it's very advanced because by the time it pokes its head out between the feathers, it might be, well, sometimes difficult to do a lot in the short term. So let's cut to the cut, Mark. So the treatment. <laughs> well, I think... Walk us through it. Let's have a brief little summary of how 
how how tricky is this? Is it something you'd recommend to veterinarians who only see occasional avian patients? And is it a complicated, difficult surgery? What's what is the success rate with it? And um, yeah, complications that might arise from it. Well, it is. A, it's very complicated, Brendan. And there would be lots of these cases where we would um, we would suggest that surgery to correct the hernia in the first instance is not going to be a, a suitable course. That you're going to have to um, decrease the size of the the um, reproductive tract. You're going to have to treat the diet, probably nutritionally treat the liver so that um, that you've got a, a smaller viscera all round um, and maybe even give it some time and hormonal treatment to, um, to improve the abdominal musculature before you tried to repair it. And even then, the repair will often involve, um, you know, extensive support and um, and often those the similar sort of prosthetic nets that are used in um, in many instances of uh, inguinal hernias in humans, the polypropylene mesh arrangements. Um, then then sometimes those are the things that have to be employed to hold the bird's uh, body in some decent sort of so, shape. So do you think it's a little bit? analogy like cruciate surgery and that there's lots of potential different techniques and products to use and people have their favorite method and because there's not one technique that is much better than others <laughs> well it's certainly uh um I, I certainly think you have to tailor the treatment to the individual patient um and sometimes it is uh, more um, conservative and other times more aggressively surgical. Um, and I think it is analogous to, um, to cruciate surgery where, you know, uh, there's, there might be no perfect solution and a whole bunch of near perfect solutions um, applied to individual cases uh, are probably equally good. So how well do they do, Mark? They do middling well, Brendan. If you're lucky with um, uh, finding one that's relatively early and maybe um, the egg ones do have a tendency to, you know, because of the rapid increase in size of the reproductive tract, they might tear more substantial abdominal muscles. And so using um, uh, the gonadotrophin agonists to shut the reproductive tract down and decrease the problem there, um, and then sewing it closed. Those guys tend to go pretty well, um, but once uh, they have more serious complication, once they have um, significant atrophy of the abdominal wall, um, it can be very difficult to um, to get a, a, a um, you know an excellent outcome. And some of those cases are, are fiddly and long term and require maybe several surgeries before it's all settled down. Sounds like it's something I'll send to you, Mark, <laughs> with some of these difficult ones. So it's gee, it must be tricky with the clients then when they you have one of these cases that you think, gee, is this going to be one that will be a difficult surgery and potentially have post-operative issues as well? Um, do you have many clients that say no to doing the workup on these? And if they do... What do you do with those cases? Well, they're difficult, Brendan, and, and I, I think these are one of the, um, the circumstances where 
Um, the hernias can cause serious discomfort. They can act as a, um, you know, as a, it's easy for um, intestine to be caught in there and not, not um, you know, I don't think they get strangulated, um, but the lip of the hernial sac might make it difficult and painful for the bird to routinely um, empty the gas and food out of its digestive tract. Um, and if they do have an egg, then often the egg um, will pinch off part of the cloaca and make it difficult for the bird to eliminate normally. Um, and they can end up with renal disease and, um, and even gastrointestinal rupture because of the the, the, the altered function of the hernia. So I do think it's one of those cases where if we can't be aggressive in treating, if we can't, um, and even if we can with some of the ones that we can't go to surgery straight away, we do have to make quality of life. We have to do the quality of life discussion. And you are so right. It's often the case, you know, these birds don't show their signs. They come in and people think they've just had a uh, an egg binding episode and it's going to be quick and easy to settle down and then we've got a complicated discussion about um, long-term uh, degenerative change to the muscle wall and the reproductive tract and now we're in a horror situation so um, it's not an unreasonable it's one of the conditions I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to talk about humane euthanasia with some of these clients. Well, so much for a simple topic, Mark. <laughs> you know me, Brendan. I can take almost the easiest thing and make it very complicated. Now, let's summarise with or, fine, or maybe finalise this <laughs> podcast with the preventative aspects, and you touched on them. So what do you recommend to clients to try and minimise the chance of this sort of thing happening and a hernia never occurring in their, their pet bird? Well, I think in the susceptible species, um, they need to, first of all, be very acutely aware of the sex of the animal they're dealing with because it's a much higher risk for female birds. Um, and then they should get onto that, you know, our whole environmental enrichment, um, the, the uh, um, foraging, encouraging foraging behaviour, um, making sure the birds are, have a nutrition that's appropriate for them and does not include excessively high levels of um, energy that convert to body fat um, and um, and yeah the the um, the whole process of um, good husbandry in my mind is probably the primary component of prevention good summary <laughs> excellent you, summary you want me to be punchy I'm terrified of um, seeing a bird with a hernia now, Mark, um, based on all those aspects there. So I'll concentrate on the preventative health and also send them all to Belinda at my practice so she can look after them. Hi, Belinda. Thank you very much. Um, anything you want to say before we head off, Mark? One last quick thing that I have forgot to mention is um, that most of the modern diets are well supplemented with calcium, but... Um, Birds that are largely on seed diets will be calcium deficient and an absence of calcium in their diet does make this worse. Um, they uh, obviously don't have the same um, effort at muscle constraction or peristalsis in the reproductive tract. So um, once again, I, I add that great husbandry, excellent nutrition um, as a preventative and, and paying particular attention to calcium. Great point, Mark. And Mr. Outro is here, so we'll talk 
to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.